to me, it looks like death. It's blue yeah. ice. It's this year. It's blue ice. We had some snow. There's rock. It's just awkward. It's it's a very steep, exposed slope that you have to get to to get to Camp Three. And uh, Camp Three is just kind of etched into the side of the mountain, which is also kind of terrifying. And you make a mistake on the Lotsi face, and it's that's it. I think the biggest thing is I feel pretty lost. I thought climbing Mount Everest, you know, I would find the answers to my life and who I want to be and where I want to go and what I want to do. Well, I love the Broncos. We won the Super Bowl. And there's a lot of Seahawks and Patriots fans at base that love to fly their flags and wear their beanies. And uh, so, of course, I I was convinced that nobody knew where I was. I was convinced that none of the guides, none of the team at base camp, nobody knew I was coming down to camp two. And I was just, I felt very alone. And I feel privileged to be among the very small population of people that know what standing on the top of the world is actually like. Welcome to 21 Pairs of Shoes, a Steamboat Springs sports and adventure podcast with Joel Richenberger, sports editor at the Steamboat Pilot Today newspaper in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. We're here with our third episode, and well, we're already repeating a topic. Honestly, that's a testament to the power of our first topic, however, and trust me, this one's different. This week, we sat down with Steamboat Springs-based mountain climber Kim Hess, who's back in town after summiting Mount Everest last month. This was Kim's second trip to Everest. She was also there a year ago and was halfway up the mountain when a devastating earthquake shook the region, killing nearly two dozen climbers at base camp as well as thousands of other people around the region. As an aside to that, they call off the climbing season. Kim didn't waver, however, and despite the serious financial implications and the massive time commitment, she was intent on returning to the mountain this spring. That's what a lot of our first podcast revolved around, being in the region during the earthquake, surviving that experience, and making the decision to return. We also talked to local climber Doug Tuminello, who summited Everest in 2006. If Mount Everest interests you at all the topic, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that first podcast. You can find it and all of our podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and any of your favorite podcast downloading apps. This time, however, we interview Kim. Kim went back this spring, and to say the least, the climb went better. I was thrilled to get to sit down with her again, and thrilled to hear the story of her trip to the top of the world. So, thanks for listening. A bit of fair warning, this is our third show, and it's been a learning process. Despite having some actual podcast equipment, it sounds like I'm interviewing Kim from the other side of the room instead of directly into a microphone as I was. Kim, however, is crystal clear, and I hope you enjoy her story. This is the 21 Shoes Podcast. We named it that because that's we figured that's as many that's all the shoes you need to participate in all the outdoor sports in Steamboat. You like you know you need kayaking shoes you need uh, ski boots snowboard boots I like it um, AT boots uh, I like it you can go on and on and on you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> I like we, it we to be honest we we did not include cramp include crampons in that because you know you don't very often need crampons here locally you sure don't but obviously you do personally I do personally yes <laughs> well well welcome back to the United States and welcome Thank back to you. Steamboat. The big question first, what's what's it like on the top of Mount Everest? Cold. <laughs> yeah? Um, it's cold, but it's it's breathtaking for more reasons than the fact that there's no air up there. It's um, 
the most beautiful place I think I've ever seen. And you got, I mean, one of the, I hope you'll tell me more about it, but you got one of those iconic, incredible photos of the, of the shadow of the mountain. I did, and that was pure luck. Um, I ended up summiting pretty early. I summited at 5.04 a.m., so the sun had just started to come up. It was freezing, and I had kept my cell phone in my down suit off to keep it warm, trying to preserve battery life. So I went to turn it on and take a picture of this beautiful shadow. And by the time I got my camera out and snapped one photo, the phone froze, battery dead, game over. Oh, wow. So, was it 100% charged? 100% charged, and it froze within seconds. So the fact that I got that photo is pretty unbelievable, so I'm pretty proud of myself. Yeah. <laughs> but then I started to panic, because what was I going to take a picture of myself with? Oh, yeah, did you find a way? Yeah, I did, we did, but it took some time and uh, warming up some different devices, but. Yeah, wow. Well, let's let, let's go back to the beginning. Um, we, we've previously talked about your, your big decision to go back. Um, right. And uh, what was it like making that flight again? What was it like uh, kind of going through the paces just like you did the year before? It was a huge mental challenge. Um, and I knew that going into this trip. I knew physically I was capable of doing it, but the mental side of, of going back and having to do the trip again was going to be probably the hardest part for me. And I knew that. So, you know, the excitement wasn't so much there like it was the previous year. I... I knew the airport, I knew how customs worked, I knew where the hotel was. It just wasn't, it was kind of like going to work. Yeah. Sort of. And then, you, you know, you start the trek and there's new people and there's different characters in the story and it was great and, and they were fantastic and I loved every second of it. But until I had reached the point of where we had been la the previous year, it was kind of just going through the motions and trying to keep a positive mind and enjoy the ride and not get frustrated with having to do it again. To, to reiterate, your, your, last, your last attempt, your attempt in 2015 ended with um, when you were at Camp 2 and there was an earthquake. Correct. Um, was, was that on your mind at all? Was it, was it eerie being back there? Not really. It was inspiring, I think, to see how Nepal has started to rebuild and, and how much progress they really have made. I, I mean, that was a fear going into it, that things were just going to be in ruins, and it was just going to be a sad place like it was when I left, and that was not the case. Um, they've come a long ways, and they've done a lot of work, and so it was kind of nice to see that despite the tragedy of the previous year everybody was buzzing and happy and excited for the climbing season so you, you the hike in was the hike in very much different not really pretty mm. much the same I mean the only thing that would have been different was the tea houses that you stay in some of them hadn't been rebuilt or some of them you know were still under construction but for the most part everything looked the exact same which is kind of weird yeah did you, did you ever have a second of doubt about going back, or were you pretty committed the whole time? No. I knew uh, right away. I knew the minute that they canceled our trip in 2015 that I would be going back, and I even said something to a teammate. I just looked at him and said, well, Paul, are we going back or what? He was like, what do you, we can't make that decision now. And I said, absolutely, I am. Yeah. 
And your brother got to come this time. My brother got was, to come this time. Yeah. The, the schedule didn't work out last year, but it did this year? It, yeah, he fell in love and, you know, decided to do the engagement <laughs> life commitment thing. So he got married in February of this year, and then we left in March. And um, it was great, except that the Denver blizzard really threw a wrench in our departure. So he ended oh, wow. up being uh, about a week behind me. So we didn't actually get to trek in together. He trekked in with uh, another team that was starting a little bit later. So I didn't see my brother until almost two and a half weeks into the trip, which was kind of interesting. Wow. It's amazing what one little, it's, it's such a complex process that one snowstorm can make. One snowstorm was, <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, you have to reroute three or four different flights depending on which route you go. And, and then you get to Kathmandu and, is the weather going to be clear for you to fly to Lukla is always up in the air, and it wasn't, so, yeah. Did, 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 you, did you pack smarter this year? Was there anything you took that maybe you, didn't, you hadn't known on your first trip? Yes. I, my bags were significantly heavier this year. Oh, yeah. I brought a little more, um, a little more luxury items. You just realize that you are there for two months plus, so it's just the little things that make life a little bit happier, so... I brought thicker sleeping pads and a couple extra jackets and just, you know, things to make life at base camp happy. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, would, I would guess it would be the opposite. I would guess that you'd, you'd take less. But No. Last year I was so worried about coming in underweight and I was afraid I wasn't going to have money to cover the extra bag fees and stuff like that associated. Oh, yeah. So I just, um, so this year I gave myself a little more leeway. Brought more food that I like, stuff like that. Oh, yeah? What's 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 food that you like that you take to Mount Everest? <sighs> well, Girl Scout cookies. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Thin mints. It's, it's I, a good year, good year for, for some lucky girl in Steve. Oh, right? man. They always corner me, and I can't say no. They, it's like they know it's my weakness. So I think I brought seven or eight boxes of Thin mints. Wow. And <laughs> they're gone. Yeah? Yeah, they didn't last long. Now, do, do you share those in uh, base camp or...? I'll trade. You'll trade. I don't just give them away. Well, I take that back. Um, my climbing partner, who's from a village in Nepal, Mingma, he he took a liking to them, so I would share them with him. Oh yeah, well that's that's up high. But that's every, a good person to keep uh, to, ex- keep, on to the, keep happy. Yeah. But everybody else had to trade something that was of equal value. Is that is that the way base camp works? Is it a barter system? <laughs> sort of. Yeah. You know, it keeps things interesting. I guess it never crossed my mind before. <laughs> With my Girl Scout cookies, I won't give them away. Other stuff I, I will happily give away, but yeah, that's gold right there. What's, what's it like your first time you get back up to Camp 2 this year? You know, it felt like a totally different place, and it was, um, it was all because of the snowfall this year. Last year it was such a, a big snow year, and it was snowing the whole time we were there, and this year it was a lot warmer, and so you could see a lot more. Uh, last year it was just... It was just snow and ice and everything was frozen in time. And this time you could see everything. You could see rock and you could see the history of, of climbing on that mountain. Oh, wow. Frozen and glaciers. So it almost, it, it was nice that it felt completely different because all of the previous bad thoughts of what happened there were kind of gone. Yeah. Even base camp? Base camp looked pretty different, or was that...? Base camp, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a it's a glacier, and it moves and yeah. melts, and so everything, although our camp was in the same area, 
I was looking for this one rock that was the, a massive boulder that I used to brush my teeth on and I couldn't find it. And I realized a, a couple of weeks later that it was right in front of me. It just looked different because of how everything had melted. But um, I was expecting it to be really dirty after the blast zone from the avalanche that annihilated base camp. And I couldn't believe how clean it was. And, yeah. and it was actually slightly irritating because one day I went out for a treasure hunt on the moraine just to see if I could find something cool to take home and there was nothing. I looked for hours. Like what, like what's a what's an Everest treasure? I don't know, like a like an ice screw from the seventies or yeah, um, you know, you always like a, an old oxygen tanker. So you always find something <laughs> out there, and they they had a couple armies come in and do a big cleanup, and they did a hell of a job. That's good because it's, it's great. I mean, that's been one of the kind of endearing stories about Everest. Is Absolutely, what a trash dump it's become. Absolutely, yeah, it's better than it used to be. It's though. better than it used to be. I looked hard. <laughs> is there still work to be done, like up higher on the mountain, or is it looking? There is work to be done up higher. Um, it it kind of becomes a a question of is it worth risking lives to clean up something that is going to be incredibly difficult and might be impossible, just because a lot of the stuff that has been left behind has been there for twenty or thirty years, and it's part of the mountain now. It's frozen into the ice. And oh wow! Yeah. You know, he can't get it out. Yeah, huh. Um, so, so let's start at the bottom and kind of take me up the mountain this year. I know, I know it's always incredibly exciting and, and scary. Maybe going through the going through the the Kumbu Icefall. What, what was that yeah. like this year? It doesn't scare me. It never really has. Um, it's kind of like a playground. You know, it's just these these ice towers that are the size of buildings and these crevasses that just seem to go on forever. And to me, it's never scary. And I don't know if that's just blocking the fear out. Um, it is the most dangerous part of the mountain. It's where the most accidents tend to happen. And I try to avoid that. So this year it was just fun to be back in there and cruising across the ladders and seeing how the route was different. And I felt like it was a lot harder this year. How so? It just seemed more aggressively steep, and and I think it was shorter distance-wise, but it was you had to work to get up there, and it just seemed really tough. The scale of it, when I was talking to Doug in that previous podcast I mentioned, mm -hmm. Doug was talking about the scale of it. It would be like a half mile's distance, but you're going up like a couple thousand feet. Yeah, so base camp sits at 17,500 roughly. Um, and then Camp 1, which is almost the top, well, it's the top of the ice fall, is at 19,000. 19. As the crow 19, flies, I mean, what is, like how far apart are they, though? They're pretty close? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a mile. Wow. Maybe. Yeah. Not when far. you think, I mean, the, the, the bottom to the top of the steamboat ski area is, what, six miles maybe? Yeah, it's not, maybe it's two miles. I'm really bad yeah. with distance. It's not far though. I mean, you're you're humping up, and it's not easy. Yeah, wow. But it gets easier. <laughs> yeah. So so you, you get to the top of the ice fall and. Uh, so you get to the top of the ice fall and you're finally in the Western Coom, which is beautiful. And you think you're almost to Camp One, and you realize you still have about another hour of traversing um, glacier travel, big crevasses, stuff like that, and then get to Camp One, exhausted, and take a nap. 
Did you see anything? I mean, did you have any collapses near you when you're going through the ice fall or anything like that? Or? We did have a collapse. Uh, it was during our first rotation, so our first acclimating rotation up the mountain. There was a collapse the morning we were heading up. Nobody was hurt, but it was kind of an essential part that was going to take several hours to fix. So we had to turn around, go back down to base camp, and then go the next day. Yeah. But otherwise, it was as safe as it could be. <laughs> why, why, why doesn't it scare you? If that's the, such a point of danger? I think because it's just so fun and it's challenging and it's exciting that you're moving and you're constantly clipping and unclipping and your brain is constantly going. It's not, you don't really have time. For me, I don't have time to think about, I really hope this, you know, Ciroc doesn't fall on my head right, right now. <laughs> you know, you just, you move quickly and I don't know. I don't yeah. know why it doesn't bother me. I think it's just so pretty and it's such a magical place that. I think it'd be really cool getting to show someone around as well like was it cool like kind of almost being able to be the tour guide for your brother it was cool I mean at times it's annoying just because he's my brother yeah. and you know he he wants to ask a lot of questions but no it was it was nice I think that gave me comfort as well just knowing that I've been here before I know what it's like and maybe that's why it was even more fun this year especially to go through the ice fall is it wasn't anything new you know, the fears I had last year, I didn't have this year. And so it was just fun to, you know, yeah. kind of watch him experience it for the first time and be able to reassure him that it's going to be just fine. The fears you had last year, you didn't have this year. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? I think whenever you th read or dream about Mount Everest, there are certain parts on the mountain that are going to inevitably give you fear. Um, and the ice fall was always one of them, just crossing the ladders and... It looks really scary, it sounds really scary, and so going into that, being scared, but then realizing it's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, so, so you get back up to camp too. I know we, we talked about how you, last year, you left all your supplies up there. Um, yeah. Did, did you find any of it? Some of it. Some yeah. of it was still there. Um, Just how you left it, huh? Yeah, of course. Well, kind of. My stuff actually was okay. A lot of people's items had mold and just... Smells you would never really want yeah. to encounter, but you know it was. We put every we packed everything away semi wet, and then it's been freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing for three hundred and sixty five days. So yeah. some things didn't make it out so well. No, what, what, what didn't? Um, sleeping bags and whatnot. No, we had our sleeping bags. Um, just some of the extra layers, clothing, yeah. down your down summit mitts. A pair of those didn't survive. You, you had to completely restock going over there, obviously. Yeah, yeah, going into the trip, we had to rebuy whatever was left behind just in anticipation of none of it surviving. Yeah. So I guess I sort of lucked out. I think, it gave you, I think it gave you some grief for not bringing your, uh, uh, your GoPro along back down or, or at, least the, at yeah. least the SD card. Did, did you find that? That, no, we didn't no. find that. No, there was one whole bag of my stuff that... Didn't didn't just turn disappeared up. or something? Or? Yeah. Huh. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's there somewhere, but yeah. that's all right. Some things you just gotta walk away from. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, all things considered, I'm sure that was a yeah. appropriate sacrifice. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> um. Well, so what, what what's it like then going up from there? Because that had to be a pretty exciting day. Your your first step towards Camp Three after you 
yeah. topped out at Camp 2 last year. Uh, yeah, I was really excited to see the Lotsi face, and you read about how steep and hard and exhausting it is. And so, what's, what's the Lotsi face? The Lotsi face is, <laughs> it's like, I think it's 6,500 feet of just, to me, it looks like death. It's blue yeah. ice. It's, this year, it's blue ice. Um, we had some snow. There's rock. It's just awkward. It's, it's a very steep, exposed slope that you have to get to to get to Camp 3. And uh, Camp 3 is just kind of etched into the side of the mountain, which is also kind of terrifying. And you make a mistake on the Lotsi face, and it's, that's it. So, so. you're just climbing up a... I mean, it's, it's, it's wide and open. It's and wide and open for the most part. Um, you know, there's some ice bulges here and there, and there's definitely some crevasses. But for the most part, it's just a sheer face. How steep? <sighs> if you're hiking up a ski run here in Steamboat, what, what run would you be hiking up? One of the chutes or Storm Peak face? Or? Yeah, part, some of the chutes. I mean, some pitches obviously are a little more mellow, but yeah. it's definitely a... A, a double black. Yeah. yeah, like a 60 degrees maybe. Oh, wow, yeah. I mean, I mean, every step would be tough, I would imagine. Every step's tough. And the first time we hit Camp 3, we do it without any oxygen. And then the idea is to sleep at Camp 3 without any oxygen to acclimate. And so that also is just scary, knowing how hard it's going to be. But I was really excited, except for the fact that I had bronchitis. <laughs> Oh, no. And was really sick. And so I think for the, the only time and for the first time in the entire trip, I doubted if I was capable of getting to Camp 3. Not because I knew I, not because I couldn't do it, but because I wasn't sure I could do it the next day being so sick. And it worked out, you know? Yeah. Mind over matter. Yeah, they, they say carved out, Camp 3 is kind of carved out of the side of the mountain. Mm -hmm. help, me, help me picture that. It's pretty much like walking a plank. The, the, sh the Sherpa, are, they're so amazing at their job and what they do, but they basically go in there with shovels and ice picks and literally chop in platforms into the side of a mountain, and you have a very small ledge to walk on, and everything's very close and very tight, and if you mess up up there, like I said, it's... There's really no coming back from that. So it's just amazing how they do it. So there's a ledge just the side of your tent hacked down? Pretty much, yeah. They We had three terraces of tents, and they're right next to each other. When you get out of your tent, there literally is about two feet of a walkway. Wow. And then that's it. And if you, if you slipped, you'd slide mm -hmm. how far? <laughs> All the way ways. down. Yeah. All the way down to the to camp two, and yeah. it would be the ride of a lifetime. <laughs> a dumb question: Would it be certain death if you slipped? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you spend so you're acclimatizing. You spend mm -hmm. a night there without oxygen. What's it like being that high without oxygen? It's weird. Your mind kind of starts to play tricks on you. You know, your body's just struggling to to lay there. You're panting, and. Every time you sit up to drink water or eat, it's just, it's like you sprinted down the street. Um, I think a lot of it's mental, though. I, I found myself being incredibly uncomfortable and just focusing on the fact that I was sick and I didn't feel good and I couldn't breathe. 
And it wasn't until I kind of told myself to calm down and try to go to sleep and that I was fine where I really could get comfortable and actually sleep. But for the most part, you go into this rotation thinking, I'm not going to sleep at all. It's going to be miserable. I'm going to hate every minute of it. We're going to get up early and get back down to camp too. Um, can you sleep? What, what, what are you, 20, 21, 22,000? No, uh, camp three is 24,600 24. roughly. Can you sleep at, at that? I was able to get maybe six hours of sleep. Yeah. But considering we rolled into camp at around one or two in the afternoon, you're in your tent until six yes. o'clock the next morning. So it's a lot of time where you're just kind of staring at your tent ceiling and at any other camp, usually when you get there and you go into your tent, you fall asleep and you sleep for maybe 10 or 12 hours. But I was lucky to get five or six. Oh, wow. Dude, what, what, do you, what do you do with that downtime? Chat with people or just... <laughs> Talk to your brother, yeah. read, listen to music. Some people put, you know, movies and stuff on their phones and just sit there and try to keep your mind occupied. I think... Yeah. I was reading The Martian, so that oh, kept yeah. me entertained, but yeah. <laughs> otherwise you just eat, yeah. hang out, take <laughs> pictures. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, so, so, so then you come back, down, you come all the way back down to base camp at that point? All the way back down to base camp, and then at that point you're quote-unquote ready to summit, and then you just have to wait for your weather window. I was watching on, on uh, your company's blog, and they were talking about it sounded like you had a window, but then it kind of closed, and then you had quite a quite a wait at first, though, right? Yeah, um, I sat at base camp for ten days straight, which it's like it's like I felt like a caged animal just sitting there because yeah. you're not supposed to really go out and do a whole lot. You're not supposed to be hiking, or you're just supposed to be letting your body heal and relax and just be ready to go. But there's not a whole lot to do. You know, there's only so many books you want to read. There's only so much time you want to be in your tent laying down. And that has to be one of the hardest parts of the entire trip was mentally staying focused and in the game and not wanting to just pack up and go home. Um, so then you, did you have a couple false starts or false alarms in there? Um, not really. I mean, we had planned on one summit window and then kind of knew it wasn't going to work oh, a couple of days before yeah. and uh that was actually when the first couple of groups did summit and I'm glad we didn't because I heard the weather was awful and uh it was not a day you wanted to be on the summit so I was okay with that and just kind of sat back and told myself when it's time it's time they'll give me the green light just there's nothing you can do chill yeah. out so then I was expecting it to be a couple other days before we got the thumbs up and that night at dinner, they just said, pack up, we're leaving at 3 a.m. And I just thought, oh, it's actually happening, here we go. And then up Do you feel, I mean, is it almost like, I don't know. I don't know, what's, what's your immediate reaction? It was that? kind of, I don't know that fear's the word, but kind of just, well, oh crap, now I have to actually do this. Yeah. You know, I've, I've said I'm gonna do it, and I know I can do it, but now I actually have to get all the way to the summit and come all the way back down. So it was kind of a, definitely gave me anxiety. I bet, yeah. And I don't think the excitement kicked in until we were actually cruising back up where things started to get exciting. So yeah, did you even try to sleep that night? 
I mean, not really. I tried to. I just was kind of so amped and ready to go and wanting to tell the world we were leaving, but we try to keep that information off of the internet because other teams will try to shoot for the same wind. I mean, everybody gets the, sort of the same weather reports, but the last thing you want is everybody knowing that one of the biggest guide companies is sending their team up to Summit because that just means more traffic and people kind of follow our lead. So to kind of be sitting on this really exciting piece of information and not being able to share it was... Wow, and you can't even, so like even around the... Is, is base camp, I mean, are you sitting there chatting with members from other teams like every day? Or, or? You can. Some people do. Um, you know, if you, the mountaineering community is so small that odds are you know somebody or you've climbed with somebody that's there. Yeah. Personally, I didn't know anybody else at base camp, so I just kind of kept to myself. But um, people will wander into camp and try to get information. And being with one of the bigger outfitters on yeah. Everest people know that we have the most information and kind of trust that we know what we're doing. So they'll yeah. jump on our schedule. I, I grew up on a farm. I'm well aware what it's like to constantly watch the weather. Um, is, is that what it's like? Is it constantly checking or is it about one check a day and then you... S- I think they get a weather report in the morning and then they get another weather report in the evening at 5 oh, o'clock. Yeah. Um, they use a couple of different guys that live all over the world that are kind of known to track Everest weather. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it's a constant. It's definitely a constant thing. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're, you're packed up at 3 a.m. You head out through the ice fall, huh? Head up through the ice fall. And but it's even creepier. Well, I said it doesn't creep you out. It doesn't creep. Is it even creepy at 3 a.m.? No. No? Okay. That's the best. It's, yeah? it's quiet. It's calm. Your headlamps on. You can only see what's right in front of your feet, and you can look up and kind of see the the trail of headlamps going up. I wow, yeah. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. And heading up on our summit rotation, I was just so excited to feel how much better it felt not being sick. And I, it wasn't until I started heading back up the ice fall that I realized the last time I was through here, I was really, truly very sick with bronchitis. So, tell me a little about that, the bronchitis. You just get sick. I woke up one day and I said, I'm sick. And yeah. you know, everybody's like, no, you have the kumbu cough, which is kind of this chronic cough that everybody gets in the dry altitude. And I said, no, I'm actually sick. Trust me, I know I'm sick. And, and I was. It's just, it, it happens. And you can either choose to climb through it or, or you can't. And for me, I was able to, to get through it. But... Did it come close to? Uh, did it come close to ending your trip, or preventing your the summit? I don't think so, because I don't think I would have let it. I mean, I'm not. I'm a smart climber, and I know my limitations. And I hadn't reached that point where I didn't think I had it in me. So, um, no, I knew it would pass. It's like anything; you just have to be patient and and hope that it does go away. And it did go away for me, which was great. So when we had it. How many days before that 3 a.m. wake-up call did it disappear? It had been maybe a week and a half. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're, you're feeling like a champion. Feeling you're like a champion. I mean, everybody's flying. The entire team is is moving faster than we've ever moved, and everybody feels great. And um, get up to Camp 1, just excited excited that everybody on the team's 
moving really well and feeling really well because everybody had been battling something at some point. So it was just good morale to see everybody doing well. And slept at camp one for the night, got up, moved up to camp two. Again, everybody's moving faster than they've ever moved. Just excited. That's a one day. That's a one day. Next night at camp two. Yeah. Um, And then we actually spent two nights at camp two because we were waiting for weather and just making sure that the day we were shooting for was actually going to shape up. So we had two full days at camp two, which was nice to kind of have a day of rest before attacking the Lotsi face again. And, um, and then we moved up the Lotsi face and that was when I really started to feel like a million bucks because the last time I was on that face, it was awful and I hated every second of it. And this time I couldn't believe how fast we got up there and how easy it was. And, and then you crawl into your tent and you finally get to sleep and relax with some oxygen on. Oh, yeah, okay, so this time you had oxygen. You started at Camp 3 with the oxygen? Yeah, so once yeah. we get into Camp 3, uh, we immediately went on oxygen, and, you know, you just hang out, and you're excited, and it was happening, and you feel good, and you sleep, and you still have your appetite now. Just that little bit of oxygen helps so much oh, to yeah. just eat and drink and relax. Do you have any Girl Scout cookies left? No, they were No, they, they were, were long gone. gone. Okay. We had moved on to other things at that point. You'd save one sleep for the summer push. You know, I was going to, but I thought <laughs> I'm going to smush them in my pocket anyway, so what's the point? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so no, but um, yeah, just eat, sleep, relax. Just, you know, my brother and I were were so excited and, and just excited to be heading up. And, and then... The even more exciting part was the next day we were going to be climbing to Camp 4, which was territory we'd never been in. So then you have the excitement of of seeing something you haven't seen and being challenged with different obstacles and and getting and really seeing what Mount Everest is kind of about. Yeah. Because between Camp 3 and the South Coal, which is at Camp 4, you start, you know, at this point we're seeing people that have summited and they're coming back down. And you really see what the mountain does to a person and what your summit day, what it looks like to be a summiter coming down. And what does it, it look like? It looks like you're really tired. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people had frostbite on their faces. And, and, you know, the friendly hellos that you're used to getting below weren't. They were, you know, everybody's quiet and everybody's exhausted. And, and you see people struggling and you see it becomes real. It's not, not, not high fives and handshakes. It's huh? not high fives and handshakes yeah. for the most part. I mean, I, you, you kind of start to get to know people. And if I pass somebody new, of course, you know, congratulations and keep going, you're almost down, and just trying to give them encouraging words because the hardest part of summiting is coming down, and I was passing them on the hardest part. So yeah. it was exciting, and it felt good, and I was excited to be there, but it was really, really set in what I was doing Yeah, for the first time. Camp 4 is one of those legendary, if, if, you, read, if you read about the climb, it's one of those Kind of legendary, uh, well, legendary spots. That, that's another one of those things that's kind of hard to imagine when you when you've never been there. What's what's Camp Four like? It's very bare. It's not. It doesn't look super inviting. Uh, it's just kind of this open area with rock and tents, just getting blasted by the wind, and nobody's outside. There's no social aspect of it. Everybody's inside their tents, sitting on oxygen, doing nothing. So it's kind of almost like a ghost camp. There's just yeah. not a whole lot of activity. A lot of campfire. Or anything. 
Yeah, there's no? there's uh <laughs> there's nothing. There's just no people. Sounds kind of horrible. It <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, it it's not a place you want to be. It's not inviting in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. You want to be there for as little time as possible. Huh. So, you what time of the day do you get in? We rolled into camp four maybe around noon, and okay. then. Um, the idea is you crawl into your tent, you get as much rest and sleep as possible because we were leaving that evening at nine o'clock. So you basically have nine hours to try to sleep, you know, get your pack ready, get all your food and pockets in your down suit ready to go. And I personally didn't sleep at all. <laughs> oh yeah. But yeah, you just get ready to hit the summit. Um, what, what time What time do you leave then? What time do you head for the summit? We were supposed to leave at 9 and didn't end up getting out until about 9.20, which was fine. And started cruising up the summit and just saw this massive line of headlamps heading straight out of camp. And I just thought, this is my biggest fear come true, traffic. Yeah. That's what kills people is traffic. Um, so thankfully... Mingma and I were able to pass almost everybody on the mountain. Is it pretty much everyone from the south at this point? Or are you still in a group with your brother? And with you are in a group, people? and we all had times that we left at. Uh, part of our team left a little bit earlier, and okay. then my brother and one other teammate, the three of us left at 9.20, 9.30 together. Uh, but at a certain point, it definitely becomes you got to move at what pace is working for you and... You know, it it kind of it's kind of a bummer, but you got to do what what your body yeah. needs. And for me, it was moving faster, kept me warm and focused. So, so you're you're blown by people, huh? We were lucky enough to be able to pass people and not have any issues with it. Low enough on the mountain where it's easy to pass multiple people. Yeah. At one kind of go. Is it a young clipping for this, or is that scary? It is. I mean, so you always have, if the terrain allows, um, you should always be clipped on the line at some point. So you have two points of contact. So you kind of clip one carabiner around and kind of shuffle up around people. But it works if there's, if it's not dangerous terrain and there's a lot of people, then you can just kind of, we would unclip, clip to each other run yeah. past people and get back on the rope as fast as possible. Um, so did, did the traffic end up being a problem as you got higher? It didn't for me, but it did for a lot of other people that were summiting that day on our team. Oh, um, really? A lot of them got stuck behind you know, a group of 15 or more that wouldn't let them pass. And because of that, their summit day ended up being you know almost twice as long as mine. Wow. So I was thankful yeah. that it worked out the way it did. What's the first What's the first major obstacle you get to as you're approaching the top of the mountain? Um, so right out of Camp 4, you just head straight up, and then the biggest landmark you're looking for is called the balcony. So that's where our team, we swap oxygen tanks at the balcony, try to eat and drink as much as you can, and then you just head straight back, straight up, and you kind of follow this ridge line, and you don't really have a place to stop until you hit the south summit. And... 
I really enjoyed going from the balcony to the south summit because you do get up on this ridge and you can just see so far to your right into Tibet and so far to your left into Nepal. You can see Camp 3 glowing. You can see, I mean, you can just see everything. And I could see people climbing up the Tibet side. You could oh, see wow. their headlamps in the distance. And it was spectacular. It was a full moon. So everything was glowing. I mean, the views were amazing to the south summit. And then when I got to the south summit, the sun started to come up. So I had a full moon on my left and just the sun starting to glow orange on the right. And I thought, this is actually happening. And I got pretty emotional at the south summit because I realized I was actually going to do this. And it was kind of a dream come true. Yeah. Um, so how far, how far is the south summit then from the real summit? Well, you think it's a lot closer than it is. Uh, yeah. You follow, again, it just kind of goes up, down, up, down, up, down this ridge and the Hillary step that wasn't there, which was interesting. And uh, How do you mean? Well, you, you learn these landmarks as you yeah. study the mountain and then you expect to see something there. And when you don't see it, it kind of throws off your judgment of time and where you are and how fast you're moving. And I kept waiting for the Hillary step. And I never saw it. Yeah. And you just read that it's this really awkward part of the mountain that you'll know when you're there. And I didn't. <laughs> and you didn't. Huh? I didn't. And I think it took maybe 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes to go from the south summit to the summit. Um, some people, it takes two hours. It's just that last bit where you're just so tired. You're so exhausted. It's exposed. It's a lot of work. Um, but for everybody, it's a little bit different. Um, what's, uh, what's, what's that final summit ridge like? It's beautiful, but it's definitely nerve-wracking because you realize that, I mean, there's just a sheer drop on each side, on each side of you, and you're kind of on this very narrow traverse that I just kept thinking, don't make a mistake, don't mess up now, you're so close. Would mess up being slip and fall. Slip or yeah, slip fall. Not yeah. pay attention. Not make you know. Not be clipped in or. Every every step you're pretty. You gotta be pretty careful. I imagine. Huh? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Don't want to make a mistake up there. Yeah. But are you still passing people at this point or? No, at this yeah. point, uh, one uh, one person had already summited. That was within our guide company, uh, but wasn't on my climbing team. He had summited in the dark, which is kind of a bummer, but. I was the next person after him, and so he and he and I were the first two people on the summit, which was pretty awesome. So, what's what, take me through the last ten or fifteen steps? Are we there yet? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It just seemed like it. It just kept going and going and going, and then you start to then you see the flags at the top, and um, I had the shadow to my left, and I thought I got to get a picture of this before the sun comes up anymore, and you know, got that picture and then it takes a minute to kind of get situated up there and make sure that you're safely attached to something because there's no fixed line up there. Even standing on the actual summit, what, what are you attached to there? Uh, we had set up an anchor and roped ourselves to an anchor wow. that was just ours. And, um, and then you, you know, try to get a photo and sit down and try to enjoy it as much as you can. Yeah. Is there a, is, is there imminent danger of falling somewhere off the summit there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. 
That sounds kind of like a dumb question, I guess. But. Well, no, but I mean, nobody, you know, it's it's not it's not a super small area, but it's it's not flat. There's a slant to it, and you know, if you take your you take your backpack off, and let's just say your backpack goes sliding, and you go to grab it, and then before you know it, you could be sliding with it. Yeah. I don't know that many accidents happen on the summit, but right. you're tired and you're clumsy and you're cold, and yeah. so I would imagine. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, so you snap your picture of the shadow. What's, I've seen the photo. It's an amazing photo, and we'll definitely share it with this, with this story and with this uh, pod- podcast. But what's it like actually looking at it in person? Um, pretty emotional, I think, to see it with your own eyes. You, I've seen the photo before, and it's no secret that many people have taken that photo. But it's... Uh, d- d- Describe it for us. So it just looks like a big pyramid, and it's the shadow of Everest uh, being cast down into Nepal over, you know, other 8,000-meter peaks. I mean, it's it's very iconic in that you just see how big Everest really is in comparison to the rest of the world and everything down below you. And you're above the clouds, which is unreal. And it wasn't until... I was explaining the picture to somebody that when I zoomed in, I realized that what I thought were mostly clouds were actually mountain peaks oh, popping wow. up through the clouds, and they just look like little ant hills compared to where I was standing. And it's it's a spectacular view. Um, and then you got you got you got a tr- couple traditional summit pictures as well, right? Well, we yeah, it took a while. So yeah. my phone died, and we couldn't bring that back. And I pulled my GoPro out to take a picture, and that instantly was dead. Oh. And then I pulled out my big camera, and by the time we turned it on and tried to take a photo, it said battery low. So. We were maybe up there for 45 minutes because nobody else had been up there that could take a photo and put my camera back down in my down suit and we just tried to warm it up and as we waited, the sun came up. jogging around. Totally. I mean, we were hugging each other. We were like, how are we going to get this thing warm? But then the sun started to come up more. So that was, you know, one of the problems with summiting so early was we didn't have the warmth of the sun. And once the sun started to come up a little bit, we had a little more time. But it was basically you know, pull the camera out, take a picture, hope that either of us was in the frame. So a lot of the pictures that we did get are from my nose down. Uh, (laughs) So those didn't work out, but um, we got two or three that were, that were good. One, one of just me being super happy. And then another one with the Broncos flag, which which was a big hit. Went a little viral here in Colorado. <laughs> Apparently, I was trending on social media for yeah. a couple of days. Um, the Broncos gave you a shout out. You a lot of the a lot of the news stations and TV yeah. stations in Denver. I know. Now I just got to get those season tickets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, it was a spectacular forty five minutes and and then you know it, the summit is really exciting. But for me, like I said, the South Summit was kind of where I had my my moment of of a feeling accomplished and, and really celebrating. And once you get to the summit, you get your pictures and you enjoy the view. But for the most part, all I could think about was going down and kind of the euphoric feelings wear off and you realize, well, you've been climbing for seven and a half hours and you're not even close to being done. Yeah. So then you kind of, it's great, but 
in the back of my mind, I was thinking I have a lot of work to do still. 45 minutes is a long time to spend there, isn't it? Yeah. 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 They recommend, and I don't, we don't, we're estimating. We, th I mean, for all I know, it could have been an hour or it could have been 30 minutes. I don't yeah. really know. Um, I think it was a lot longer than I thought initially, and I know it was a lot longer than we should have been up there. Well, I mean, you're on oxygen. What's, what's necessarily the danger of, as long as you have plenty of time to get down? Yeah. As long as yeah. you don't run out of oxygen, you have time to get down and you're not too exhausted. I mean, a lot of times people sit down and, you know, it's... It's hard to get back up yeah. when you've worked that hard. Um, for me, it, that wasn't the case, but you know, you're exposed. You're. It was windy. It was absolutely freezing up there. So yeah. it's not. You know, it's not a place you want to hang out. What's the temperature? Did you check? I don't know. Maybe negative forty. Yeah. When I was up there with the wind and without the sun, um, but some of my teammates when they summited a couple hours later. I mean, their summit photos look completely different than mine. Really? They're, I mean, all of my pictures, I, my eyelashes are, I have balls of ice on my eyelashes. My zipper on my down suit was frozen. It took forever just to unzip it. I mean, I'm just, everything on me is frozen. And then you look at my brother's summit picture and he's, there's no ice on him. He looks relatively warm and happy. Yeah. And it's amazing what a little bit of time in the sun can do. You could have... I mean, I, I always feel horrible for the people who get up there. You mentioned it being night. But, I mean, I can't imagine somebody in it being cloudy. Like, I would just, <laughs> I'd just lose my mind. I'd be pretty upset. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you would hope that because you're watching the weather so much, tech, I mean, you shouldn't, you should be up there on a sunny day. Yeah. I guess, yeah, if, if it were cloudy, the weather would be the miserable. The weather's probably, yeah, you, you know, snow's there. coming in or, yeah. so I would, yeah, I would be upset. Yeah. If it wasn't that beautiful morning that I had. Yeah. But you had what well, looked, looked like you had a, a low cloud layer. but uh, Low cloud layer. And, and we had kind of expected some weather to move in later in the afternoon. So we yeah. left earlier than I think we would have normally. But they were expecting an after, afternoon snowstorm. Yeah. And, you know, best just to get up and get down. And it did end up snowing later in the afternoon, but it was nothing. It sounds kind of silly to... It sounds kind of silly to wait so long for a photo and try so hard for a photo, but obviously that seems like such an important part of it too. It is, and it's just a photo, and I, it sounds so silly saying that out loud. You know, I stood around to take a photo. Millennials, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? No, but I totally get it's it. like I yeah. needed to get that selfie. Um, but I, I wanted to remember it, and I, I know I knew at the time going into it that your mind is so altered, whether you can recognize it at the present moment or not, that you're inevitably going to forget what it was like. And I already forget what I felt like up there, but all I have to do is look at a picture and look at my own face and remember how excited and, and yeah. amazing it was to be there. So, And not to mention, you don't get a summit certificate if you can't prove you were there. Oh, really? You have to have a photo to get Yeah, a so they've, they've gotten pretty strict about that. My guess is because people lie and say that they were there all the time. So in order to get your summit certificate from the Department of Tourism, you have to submit either a video or a photo that shows you were there. Wow. Um, were people, so you're, you're spending 45 minutes, there were, were people coming and going around People here? People were coming. Uh, um, there was uh, the very first Sri Lankan woman, Oh, wow. Summited, which was really cool. So she was up there. Uh, her and I left around the same time, and then one other teammate passed me. But for the most part, 
nobody was on the summit around the time I was. There were a couple, I think two or three people came up from the north side, which was kind of weird to be standing there on the summit alone. And then you see somebody come up from the opposite side and just yeah. kind of say, hey. <laughs> uh, that was kind of interesting. But Searing? Other... Did you see Searing? No. Other he summited. Climber? Yeah, he summited, um, I think he was two days before me. Okay. I know. The we, world's most amazing story. Had we timed that, that would have been pretty <laughs> awesome. We, we didn't communicate very yeah. well on that one. Um, how far behind you was your brother? I'm not sure. We, we think he thinks he summited around 730. Um, so he was about two and a half hours. And you, he, did you see him going back down? I did. I passed him pretty close to the South Summit. He was with uh, our guide, Justin, and one other teammate, Paul. And, and they were, I mean, they were doing great. They were jazz. They, you know, everybody had heard me radio in on the summit, which was pretty cool. And some people make like sat phone calls. Did you do anything like that? I didn't, you know, I want, I had thought about, I guess you didn't have any battery for anything. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm glad I didn't even bother with it. I was good. I thought about calling someone and everybody said, well, who would you call? And I, said, well, myself. <laughs> They're like, what is that? What do you mean? And I'm like, well, it's something that I worked for, you know, for so long. And it's, it's a moment that I, I hoped I would have been able to share with my brother on the summit, but really it was a moment that I was going to experience alone. And so I thought, what cooler way than to call my local American number and leave myself a voicemail. Yeah. Um, and it didn't, it's, it's okay. It didn't happen. <laughs> How, how did you guys get split up? He got stuck behind traffic, and um, I saw him at the balcony, and I was just so cold sitting there trying to eat and doing the oxygen. I was shaking, and I just said, I got I to keep moving. I can't, I can't sit here. And on Summit Day, it, it's understood that you have to do what is working for your body. And yeah. Did you take a little pride in winning? <laughs> you did, didn't you? Oh, I mean, I always beat my brother. <laughs> no, it's not a race, Joel. But of course, yeah, I beat all the boys at the top. Yeah. We wouldn't take a little pride in that. <laughs> we, we talked about that a little last time we talked, but that was kind of, I mean, that was I mean, somewhere that's, that's a, little bit of been a, a little bit of a motivating factor for you, showing that you can do this, showing that you can. Definitely. I mean, being told that you can't do something, for me, I just kind of laugh and say, well, watch and I'll do it faster. <laughs> but, you know, on, on Everest, in all honesty, it's moving too fast can kill you. So it's definitely not a, it's not something I was right. trying to do. I you was just comfortable. I was moving at the pace that felt really good and was safe and good for me. And it was a bummer that my brother and my teammates couldn't have been up there with me. Yeah, but what a special, I mean, even if he wasn't there at that actual moment, I think it'd be so special to be able to share something like that. With, with yeah, the yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's an experience that not a whole lot of people will ever understand. And so to have a sibling, of all things, be somebody that you know, when we're fifty, I could just be like, man, remember how miserable we were at you know camp four or whatever, and to have somebody so close understand what climbing Mount Everest truly is about is nice. Yeah. Did you, did you give him a high five when you're headed down? I gave him a high five. Yeah, okay, that's good. Um, <laughs> I gave him a high five. I gave everybody a hug. I said, you know, I'll see you down there. And, and then I actually didn't see anybody from my team for almost two days. 
because I ended up going all the way back down to camp two. Wow. Which is the goal going into okay. summit day. The goal is, is to get up and get as far down as possible. So if you can't get all the way to camp two, then you just spend the night at camp four. And I had just gotten up and beat those crowds and got down that there was plenty of time for me to go down to two. I wasn't totally exhausted, so I went down. And so I didn't see them for almost two days. You weren't totally exhausted. I No, I definitely yeah. still had something in the tank when I had gotten back down to Camp 4. Um, I think moving to Camp 2 was definitely one of the hardest things I've ever done. Mentally, your mind starts tricking you. Yeah. And I realized that kind of... How do you mean? Yeah, I was convinced that Mingma had lied to me and was trying to not lie yeah lie to me and try try to get me to move down to camp two even though we weren't supposed to but we were supposed to and so I knew mentally I was I was going crazy um I you know I was concerned about leaving my brother and I wanted to wait and see everybody and I wanted to see our guides and I didn't want to leave camp four and he just said no everybody's going to camp two we'll see everybody at camp two and then when I realized you know two hours into it that nobody else was coming down I felt Like, I had been tricked. And, you know, you just start I, you just start snapping at yourself, and all you can think about is don't die, don't die, don't mess this up now. And m- mentally, I felt like I was a psycho in my head. I didn't outwardly say anything. That was weird. But I could feel myself kind of losing touch with reality a little bit. And then we realized my oxygen hadn't been working for... A little bit of time. So that probably had something to do with it. But but definitely going from Camp 4 to Camp 2 was mentally exhausting. Mingma? Is that right? Mingma, yeah. Sounds like he's pretty awesome. He's the best. We climbed together last year. I love him. He and I move really well together. I trust him with my life. I hope he trusts me with his. Um, but he was great. He, you know, he... Helped he, me get up and all the way down safely. How many had, had he summited before? He did. This was his third summit. Yeah. Um, he said his first first summit was a couple years ago, um, and then he told me his second summit is it's much easier if you use oxygen. And he started laughing. I was like, "Oh, so your first summit you did without oxygen?" He's like, "Yes, much easier with oxygen." I'm like, <laughs> you guys are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, was it still? You think was it still special for him? Do you think to to reach the summit? Have yeah, done it he was super excited. Um, yeah, we had a good little dance up there. I, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, regardless of if you've done it or not, it's to stand up there is is so magical. And and I think after having such awful years prior, it was really good just to see people succeed. And he couldn't have been happier. Yeah. Um, wait, this is kind of a jump back here. I had one comment about one of your summit photos. You can see, you can see a rise behind you. In one of my summit photos. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. You, you don't look like you're at the very tip top. You know, I'm, if you get to the top of Mount Everest, <laughs> there should be, nothing, there should be behind. nothing behind you, above you. I know. For all you know, I took that picture on Mount yeah, Everest. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, no, that's the joke of it all. Yeah, so there is kind of a, a tippy top you can't really stand up there. Most people take their pictures by kind of the flag memorial, which okay. technically speaking, there's probably 
you know, a foot of snow behind you. Oh. <laughs> um, my brother got a great photo. He's almost kind of straddling the top, and, and you can kind of see down into the north side. Oh, but okay. with the camera not working, I mean, it was... Sounds like you had some other things. On we your... had some other things going on. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, I wasn't on the tippy top. I was a little bit below. Well, next, time. <laughs> next time, right? Next. Yeah, don't tell my dad that. <laughs> um, so so you get down to so so you get down to camp two mm -hmm. and spend spend one night there or a couple nights. Nope, or? just one night there. Um, and I guess one of the other mental games that I had played was I was convinced that nobody knew where I was. I was convinced that none of the guides, none of the team at base camp, nobody knew I was coming down to camp two. And I was just I felt very alone. And then sure enough, when I walked into camp two, uh, you know, one of the head guys was there, and he's just like. We've been waiting for you, and you know, take my backpack off and get me water and food. And I just sat down there and thought, "Huh, I'm kind of tired." <laughs> how, how many hours had it been at that point? Um, I think about fifteen of actual movement. I think. Yeah. Give or take. So did you, and you spent spent one night there and then down to basically one night there and. I still was convinced that people were trying to make me move when I wasn't supposed to move. And they said, well, we're getting up at 6 a.m. tomorrow and we're going down to base camp. They just said, to hell I am. I have to wait for my brother. Like, I haven't yeah. seen anybody. And, and um, they reassured me that, no, you know, you got to go to base camp. And there were a couple other people at camp, too, which was nice. Um, a couple of people that had gotten sick or didn't summit. And so I wasn't all by myself. There were yeah. other climbers within our company that weren't on my So team. all those people you'd passed and stuff, they all ended up stopping on their way back down higher on the mountain. Yeah, they all spent the night at Camp 4. Okay. Um, and so uh, what, what, what's, it just took your brother two extra days to go through the It was like a day and down. a half. So, they, so when they spent the night at Camp 4, I was at Camp 2. Okay. And then the next morning, I was back at base camp in a couple hours. And... Then they had to come all the way back down to two, spend the night, and then come down to base camp. So it was like a day. I mean, I guess it was kind of like two days, but it was a, a day and a half since we had summited. Did you know he was okay? Did you know he had summited? I did. So I heard that he had summited. Um, I had heard everybody had summited and everybody was back down to camp four, but, you know, didn't really know right. if he was feeling awesome, if he felt like crap. If, you know, didn't really know. So it was kind of weird when I got down to base camp calling home and my parents say, well, how's your brother? And I don't, I don't know. <laughs> He's up on Mount Everest. I'm down here. Yeah. But he was great. So. What's it like getting, getting that word out? Doing the, doing the first post on Facebook, kind of calling your parents. What's it like kind of starting to spread the word, realizing you have that kind of news to spread? Well, I was actually slightly relieved that by the time I got online, I realized that people already knew I had summited. It had already been published, Yeah. which was a, at first it was a surprise. I thought, well, shouldn't that news come from me? I mean, how can you post something that says I summited when technically I'm not all the way down yet? Anything could happen. Yeah. Um, but then I was kind of relieved because it took the pressure off and I, you know, could spend a day with my thoughts and think about what I wanted to say. And, and I did. I, I spent almost an entire day at base camp just kind of gathering my thoughts and ended up calling my parents really late and 
just kind of... What what's going through your head at that point? What are, what, are, what are you gathering there? Just what I want my message to be. I think being in the position I am and having people following my journey, you, you definitely need to think through what is the message you want to send. And, mm -hmm. and I knew that whatever I posted was most likely going to be taken and reposted and maybe published or, you know. Used for a newspaper article. Yeah, well, I learned that, <laughs> I learned that last year after uh, the earthquake. It didn't even occur to me that whatever I put on Facebook was probably going to, would be taken and used and reused. Yeah. And, and so that was a lot of it. But sorry, then just, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but then just thinking, you know, what, like, what do I feel and what is the message I want to share? And, and yeah, thinking that through. But then calling my parents, I just started screaming on the phone. I was like, we did it, mission accomplished. Yeah, I think the, the guide company included your name, so they, they got it, I think they got it out there first, I think. Yeah, I think so, and I think it's it's some law, there, there's a reason why they're supposed to publish it, or it's made public oh, as yeah. soon as it's been received that you have stood on the summit, uh, so. Um, what, uh, did, did would have any profound change in your life? Did you feel like a different person afterwards or anything like that? Not really. I think, I think the biggest thing is I feel pretty lost. Um, I, a, a while ago I had thought climbing Mount Everest, you know, I would find the answers to my life and who I want to be and where I want to go and what I want to do. And after last year, I, I knew subconsciously that I was never going to find that answer on Mount Everest. It had nothing to do with somebody in the mountain. And even knowing that, I still feel lost and wondering why I don't have the clarity that I thought I would find. That's interesting. Are you disappointed? No, not disappointed. Um, it's just you put so much time and energy into one trip, and it's been my life for... I mean, actively every day to think about something for the last five years. And it's all I think about and it's all I would dream about. And it's you know, every conversation, somehow it would be about Everest. And then and now it's done. And so you're just kind of left with, now what? Yeah. Did that strike you right away or was that not until you got back, started heading home? It was pretty immediate. I think it was, <laughs> it was... You know, once the rest of the team got down, uh, my friend Paul, who I who was on the trip last year, you know, I looked at him and I just said, "Well, now." Great what? photographer, we use someone's photos. Yeah, <laughs> Paul's <laughs> Paul's the best. His vlog's the best. Um, I just said, "Paul, now what?" And he looked at me. He's like, "I don't know. This is all that we've thought about, and you know, every cell in your body has been working towards this one goal, and now it's done." Have you, have you come up with an answer yet? I've had a couple weeks now. <laughs> no, uh-uh. I don't think I will, but that's okay. I think I'm just going to, for the first time, take the summer to enjoy life and not work seven days a week and, and hope that I begin the process of digesting what I really just went through and, and see where life takes me. Yeah. Um, so you have... You're, you're doing the seven summits. Mm -hmm. This was number five, right? This was number five. You got Antarctica and Australia left. That's it. Um, any any plans to, to tackle those? Yeah. Uh, I'd love to get down to Antarctica around New Year's. That would be, oh, wow. that would be yeah. the plan. It's a very expensive trip. It's almost as expensive as Everest. So 
to go back to the drawing board of sponsors and fundraising and stuff like that is a little more than mentally I'm ready to take on at this moment. But I think given a couple weeks, I'll be ready to jump back in and and start working towards the next one. Did you do any sponsor flags or anything at the top? Don't some people do that? Um, They do. I I had one from Manic Training where I work out here in town. I've taken uh, that flag on the summit of three uh, three of the five so I had the hat but of course that was one of the pictures where my head was basically cut off so <laughs> so I'm just gonna have to give them the flag and and move on but yeah. um yeah. What, what made you take the Broncos flag well I love the Broncos well, yeah. we yeah. won the Super Bowl and there's a lot of Seahawks and Patriots fans at base camp okay <laughs> there's a lot of people from uh, it seems like New England and the Seattle area yeah. that love to fly their flags and wear their beanies. And uh, so, of course, I had to bring the Broncos flag that was up at base camp and and take it all the way to the top just to prove to everybody that we are actually the best team. <laughs> <laughs> as long as we can get Von Miller locked up here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, so, so you... Uh, uh, you're hoping, looking to New Year's for, uh, yeah. for the next trip, huh? That that would be great. Otherwise, it would be a year, which is fine. I'm, you know, yeah. Waiting a year is not a big deal. Is but that that's the time, kind of January. December? It's November, December, January. Yeah, is the best time to go. So, if it happens, great. I'm not gonna freak out if it doesn't. And Australia would be your last. Australia is gonna be the last. My brother and I. Had when we before we even started, we thought it would be really fun to end on that one, just because it's, I think it's seven thousand feet. It's yeah, it's nothing, and we would take the whole family and kind of finish oh, wow, yeah. this journey together and and then move on. You think you mentioned not finding maybe the the that completeness feeling mm-hmm. you were maybe looking for upon summoning Everest. Do you think maybe that's waiting at the end of the seven summits, or do you think? Are you kind of prepared for maybe that sense of letdown in your excitement at the same time waiting there as well? Yeah, I don't I don't think I'll find it at the end of the seven summits. Yeah. I think it's I don't think it has anything to do with climbing. Um, but I think every mountain I do climb and every adventure I do take, I get a little bit closer to learning more about myself and what makes me tick and every mountain I do opens doors to new people and yeah. You know, what did you, you learn about yourself on this trip? I'm not very patient. I mean, I knew that, but I'm not very patient. Um, and, gosh, what did I learn? Well, that I can do anything I put my mind to. Yeah. Without question. <laughs> Just the trip in general. I mean, it, as awesome as it sounds like it was... And beyond, beyond just the summit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Man, it was the trip of a lifetime. And you know, at times, all I wanted to do was go home, and I was over it. And there's so many parts of the trip that mentally are so challenging, and obviously physically are challenging. But when all is said and done, you know, I think for the rest of my life, I'll look back and know that it was one of the greatest adventures I'll ever take. And I feel privileged to be among the very small population of people that know what standing on the top of the world is actually like. 
Thanks again for listening. Tell your friends. You can find our podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or in your favorite podcast app by searching 21 Pairs of Shoes or Steamboat Springs. Or on the Steamboat Pilot Today website, www.steamboattoday.com. Thanks to bensounds.com for the music, to my editor Lisa for the support and help, and to everyone else for helping me get this podcast off the ground. See you in two weeks.